Hi, I'm Brandon Briscoe, and welcome to another episode of The Postscript, Living Faith Bible Institute's weekly podcast and YouTube series devoted to interviewing pastors and professors from LFBI and across the Living Faith Fellowship. Every week, we come together with the intention of edifying you, having conversations about uh, ministry, about the Bible, uh, about missions, and about leadership in the church. And this week, we're going to have one of those conversations about church leadership, specifically how the role of pastor has evolved over time. We can look at the Old Testament, and we can see glimpses uh, of character qualities and responsibilities of leaders uh, in the nation of Israel. We can see those things. Uh, and we see them play out in even in the responsibilities of the New Testament church leader, the pastor. And so today I'm excited about having a conversation about the way in which the, the, the role of pastor can adapt in order to meet the needs of the mission itself. And for that conversation, uh, we've invited Pastor Alan Shelby of Harvest Baptist Church and also a professor here at Living Faith Bible Institute uh, to discuss the pastoral role and the responsibilities and how we can see those things play out uh, in the New Testament and even in our contemporary world. And with that, Alan, welcome to the show, man. Thank you. Glad to be here. Busy right now? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, more busy than you'd think it would be with, you know, everything going on with people being out or gone. But at a we wedding uh, last weekend, I have a number of things. I had last night spoken a missions, uh, co a virtual missions conference, closing oh, cool. speaker for a missions conference last night. At the same time, we had our first worship night. I know you guys do that yeah, yeah, yeah. all the time, but we did our first one. How was and, that? Uh, and that went really well. Man, Good. it was great. Praise the Lord. Is it, I, is it primarily young people that come out or was it everybody? Well, no, it was everybody. Good. And, you know, I think. Sometimes we sing a song, uh, Mountain High, Valley Low. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Christian life kind of valley low. And then you get mountain high and the, the ark is delivered to Jerusalem. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it's going to be valley low after that. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, you know, trial. Let's put, let's put worship right in the middle. Yeah. And that, that way we're pre prepared for what comes next. And, and it was just a great time. That's good, man. Well, we, we love our worship nights have been such a blessing fellowship-wise, but then also just spending a Friday night worshiping the Lord. I mean, what else better is there to do? Right, yeah. You know? so, um, and then also you're really busy with LFBI too. I mean, you're doing the manuscript evidence class and you've got, I think you've got more students in that class than we've ever had. That's the class I enjoy teaching the most, actually, um, of any of the others. Wow. Any other theology or, you know, biblical studies or whatever. And it's, I think it's the hardest class to teach too, don't you think? Uh, it probably is in a sense because so many of the concepts are um, not what we typically a language we don't typically use so mm -hmm. we've got to define some of their nomenclature and then get into their ideas and then critique biblically where they're at versus where we are at and mm -hmm. why we are where we are but I'm the most motivated for that type of thing than than anything else so. well you're good at it Oh, well, I don't so, know about that. That's why we keep recruiting you to I teach get to that. Do it. Yeah. It's been a, it's been a blessing, and everybody's saying that it's going really well. So today's topic, you know, I was really you're the first person that came to mind when I thought about this topic because this is the type of thing. This is in your wheelhouse, right? Um, being able to trace and understand the relationship uh, historically. Uh, behind the concept of the pastorate and how uh, God, you know, evolved it to fit within His dispensational or kingdom agenda, 
And so I'm really excited about getting into all of the weeds and that and hearing from you. But before we begin, um, I want to ask you, you've been in the ministry for 40 years now. I want to ask you how you've seen people's perspectives on the pastorate change over time, over throughout the years of ministry and being a pastor. How have you seen, for good and for bad, uh, contemporary culture uh, change its its view of the pastorate? Right. Well, you know, first off, um, Kenny Morgan said that I should turn the tables on you and I should oh, interview you. So was that your hair on the floor in that Instagram picture? Oh, or was no. that your son's? That's my son's. Okay. Yeah, his, his, they all wanted to know. I had to ask that. <laughs> Everyone wants he, to know. No, Shepard had shoulder-length hair, and he's playing basketball now. Ah. Uh, and the hair was bothering him. He can't seem to keep it out of his eyes. It's affecting his jump shot. Yeah. You know. Uh, so he he decided it was time. But he did have, you know, Sunday school around here is really good. And uh, he was very adamant that, that he might lose some strength uh, if he cut his hair off. Oh. So that was the only fear yeah. is that, you know, the Nazarite vow would have somehow fallen out of effect. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, so perspectives on pastoring, uh, at least what, what I've seen in my time in church, mm -hmm. church world, which has been um, independent fundamental Baptist churches. And, you know, I would say that that church and our view of pastors and our view of leadership – has pretty much uh, been in step with um, American culture and American society. Mm -hmm. So whenever a lot of churches like ours were started during World War II and thereafter, mm -hmm. and even on the American culture, cultural side, it was very serious. It was, you know, staccato reporting and, uh, you know, don't cut any slack and, you know, a little bit of cussing and stuff mm -hmm, like that. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the pastors that I grew up under um, were distant. There was no discipleship. There was certainly no intentional discipleship. It was kind of whatever you could pick up by watching them. Yeah. And um, many of them had the philosophy, I think, that you couldn't be friends with anybody in the congregation. Mm. Uh, because then either, number one, that may always make somebody else mad because you're not friends with them or right. you lose those friendships and that's difficult. And so it was, it was um, you know, only even in Bible college, it was only a discipleship that was done over the heads of a dozen other people as yeah. you looked from the back row. Mm -hmm. And you didn't really spend time with people to, to see how things were done. Mm. And um, even with my youth pastor, when I was in high school, it had to be brothers. You know, he was right. Brother Bill. Yeah. You couldn't just call him Bill. It was only Brother Bill. There was always Bill. a layer of formality. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so that was kind of how it was, uh, you know, when I first entered church world of uh, churches that are like ours. Mm -hmm. Since that time, I think our churches have, to some degree, mirrored uh, popular culture and so if a church today has a leadership conference, it's going to be um, John Maxwell. It's going to be leadership principle, which I'm not saying they're not good. Yeah, you know they're they're the and and the best part of them are the ones that he might pull from actual Bible principles. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, but it will be that type of thing. I don't know if it's 
you know, strict, strictly thoroughly Bible-based and because the discipleship idea is not out there in the majority. So churches like yeah. our, ours are rare from that standpoint. Mm-hmm. And we have multiple different personalities in terms of the leaders. Mm-hmm. But uh, since everybody's sold out to discipleship, then that kind of evens things out and makes it a little better. Helps the fellowship to be more single-minded yeah. in our approach, yeah. Do you mind, before we get too far into it, uh, just from a New Testament background perspective, explaining to us the responsibilities of a pastor. I mean, there's a lot to say about the character of a pastor and the qualifications of, pa- of the pastor, but I think sometimes we emphasize those or we don't take them far enough into their proper conclusions. Uh, why, why that character, right? Like what are the outcomes that God is looking for in his leadership? Can you talk to us about the responsibilities specifically of a pastor in a New Testament setting? Yeah. So, you know, that's a really good question. As I would say, most of our theology should be biblical theology. Mm-hmm. But in saying that theology, if correct, is biblical theology, well, biblical theology is a progressive revelation. So if I, I have to anchor my, my belief on leadership and philosophy of leadership and what leaders should do and what the leaders of the church are and what they are called mm-hmm. and how they function on biblical revelation, but that revelation itself is um, in development until the end of the book of Acts, mm-hmm. which is also in effect – um, the end of Second Timothy. Mm. Okay, so it, it's it, it's kind of in development in there, and I would so therefore I would probably take the matter of leadership, pastoral leadership, um, the officers of the church, and put that in a similar context that I would toward the doctrine of the church itself. Mm-hmm. So um, most evangelicals will say that the church began at Pentecost. Right. Okay, so it, it began at Pentecost. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems to me that might not be correct uh, in as much as the church has talked about prior to that. And uh, Jesus did not wait until after his resurrection to talk about his resurrection. He didn't wait until after his mm-hmm. death to teach about his death. He yeah. didn't wait until after Acts 2 to tell them what they needed to know ever before they got to Acts chapter 2. So I think the church, if if the church is an assembly of believers, well, it kind of started when Jesus called out the 12. Okay, mm-hmm. so that's like yeah. Mark chapter 10. So they are called out. Matthew chapter 10, they are called out potentially. Okay, so there's the church potentially. Mm-hmm. It is an effect practically at Matthew 18 because Jesus says, go tell the church. Mm-hmm. He doesn't say, go tell the synagogue. Now, if, now if that's not mind-bending. Right. But when, you know, after you get past the hinge of chapter 12, and now Jesus is giving this other information, even even in Matthew's gospel, I mean, not not just John's gospel, you'd you'd think, okay, if he's going to say something like that, say it in John's gospel, but no, Mm -hmm. even in Matthew's gospel. So now you've got the church in effect practically. So it is, it's called out, Matthew 10, it's in effect, Matthew 18, it's empowered. I think it's empowered, Acts chapter 2. And there you see the church publicly. Then it is revealed and defined in Ephesians three to five, mm-hmm. 
And so you've got the church doctrinally. Mm-hmm. Okay, so those are that's four stages of development. Yeah. Now the next one is going to be called up, taken out privately. First mm-hmm. Thessalonians four. So that means in terms of what the church does in this dispensation is kind of defined in those first four elements, those first four stages. Mm-hmm. Similarly, the churches did not start full-blown because God was keeping all his options open right. in the opening chapters of Acts. Mm-hmm. But by the time you get to Acts 28, it is finished. Mm-hmm. It is that that development stops at that spot. Right. Now, that is not what you see historically. So we've got to segregate biblical theology from historical theology about leadership and church leadership. Yeah. And this this was interesting to me because, uh, you know, I just got to thinking because, you know, I'm teaching manuscript evidence and all of that. And mm-hmm. I'm going through and I'm thinking, well, okay, uh, you know, probably, uh, probably the – church that you would think would you know have the best idea about what's going on would be the eastern church right it'd be the greek church because mm. they they were to them were delivered the oracles of god mm-hmm. i guess we might say and uh, also um they are the ones who are copying recopying giving the best copy, passing it on, right. and, you know, what comes down to us in the received text. And I thought, well, you know, um, let me do some research on the Eastern Orthodox Church. In terms of its structure and its, its, well, ecclesi- its I mean, early ecclesiology. Initially, initially, I just started with, well, let me look at the Eastern Orthodox Church from the standpoint of its history. Okay. So I wanted to see what they were doing with the text, okay. with the Greek text itself. So, you know, so I, so, so I got this book. And uh, on the history of Eastern Orthodox Church by Adrian Fortescu. And it's an older work. And actually, Fortescu, PhD, is uh, a Catholic scholar. Hmm. So here's a Roman Catholic writing about the Eastern Orthodox. But he starts us off, you know, kind of at the very beginning. And I thought this, this was interesting. Because he says the hierarchy of the church consists of three fundamental orders, bishops, priests, and deacons. Hmm. Huh. So he's, he's off on the wrong foot at the mm-hmm. very first step mm. because that's not what Philippians 1.1 says in my Bible. Right. Because, you know, it talks about pastors and deacons and saints. I know we have apostles that lay the foundation to that. Right. That's not still operative today. Yeah, as a precursor. But we've got pastors, deacons, and saints. And however, however you slice pastor as bishop and or elder and mm-hmm. deacon as deacon and or elder, right. you, you've still only got those three saints and then two other officers. Mm-hmm. So from the very beginning, he's got to say, well, no, there's three fundamental orders of leadership, bishops, priests, and deacons. So it's wrong at the very beginning. And from that wrongness, then he will go on to say that here's what happened. Here's what we know from the, from the earliest church. 
by which he means the church fathers, mm-hmm. not the New Testament, right? not the book of Acts, but the church fathers mm-hmm. who, who are messed up as soon as you get to them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so here's what we know. We know that there was Rome over all, then there was Alexandria and Antioch mm-hmm. and Constantinople. Right. And so within this system, you've got at the – so here's the common person. But if your religion is based on sacerdotalism, okay, so you have sacraments. Okay, it's a works-based yeah, right. religion. Right. You got sacraments. Then you have to have a priest to administer those sacraments. Yeah. So even if you do not believe the Gnostic idea of a succession of gods – you have a succession of mediators to get you to God. Mm. And the first level above you would be the priest mm. because he has to administer the sacraments. Mm-hmm. Then you've got a bishop. Then you've got an archbishop. Then you've got an exarch. Then you've got a metropolitan over these met- – okay, so if you were the metropolitan of any of the major areas, Alexandria – Antioch, Rome, all the other bishops came to you to be ordained. So you kind of owned them. Mm-hmm. You were a metropolitan, and yeah. then you have the Holy Father. Mm-hmm. So, I, so I, I found that historical distinction interesting when I even look back into church leadership in evangelical settings. Yeah, it's it's amazing that so early on they could they could so quickly get it so wrong. And I think it's really interesting especially the the role of the New Testament pastor. I I do believe that God intentionally left flexibility uh in the way that he defines the responsibilities. But I do think it required um first of all a lack of dispensational perspective. You know, first of all, is this a poor hermeneutic? But then, secondarily, a motivation to establish something that that supported some form of authoritarian rulership, so that men in power could have power. Yeah, yeah. And and thirdarily, mm-hmm. um, also along with that was just just the idea they were wrong all along. Mm-hmm. It's not like they got it okay. They went they went wrong so early. No, they were wrong all along mm-hmm. because they weren't even born again people. Right. So the born again people, I'm sure that they did write, but their writings were not categorized in the library at Alexandria because who were they anyway? I mean, if you're not part of kowtowing to the government, whether in Rome, at Alexandria, at Antioch, these central governmental locations to govern the empire, if you are not in cahoots with them, well, nobody's going to preserve what you're saying anyway. Yeah, there's no public platform for that person. Yeah, and anyone who kept the biblical line, who kept the line coming down to us from the book of Acts and stuck just with that, Mm -hmm. they were persecuted and their writings were destroyed as well as their Bibles Mm -hmm. and as well as their bodies. So it it seems like, well, how could it go so wrong early on? Well, these people were never right to begin with. They simply happen to be the ones whose writings come down to us. Mm -hmm. And they do reflect not Christianity 
Christianity, not, not the church. They reflect what I call the imperial church um, only, which is totally detached. It is a it is a throwback to Old Testament setup mm-hmm. because above the saints, what's the very next level? Priests. Yeah. That is oh, and that's not even Old Testament. You know, the Old Testament had priests, but it wasn't exactly a sacerdotal system because it was it was sacrifices that were types. Mm-hmm. So it was biblical typology. However, Ancient paganism, all you always had to try and appease a totally random, flippant yeah. god yeah, yeah. by doing something. And you looked for his signs in the birds and the entrails of animals, mm-hmm. and you know, you did certain things certain ways, and it was all based on superstition. And that's all sacerdotalism is. It is yeah. a superstition of how we're going to do this. And unfortunately, a lot of that, I think, creep, crept into Christianity because if you leave grace and you're going you're gonna to have a works-based spirituality, then you are also susceptible to that very thing. Mm-hmm. So among the pastors I would have known would have been ones who might have said, look, you come into my church, we accept you as a member. Well, you can't leave unless God tells me that you can leave. Mm. And if you leave without God telling me you can leave, well, I'm going to put you under church discipline. Mm. And church discipline then became a thing, again, divorced from actually the vice lists that Paul might give for those type things and a way that someone could exercise a manipulating authority. Interesting. So, um, you know, I, I, I would probably want to root and ground our ideas of what a pastor is and does and, and what he's there for, contrasting it against uh, not only what the world has, but maybe what some of us grew up in. Yeah, that's a really interesting idea. So you're saying that among, um, and it's probably not. This is probably not just an independent fundamental Baptist problem, but but that's you know where we come from. So, but what you're saying is that authoritarian leadership akin to false ecclesiology crept in to even our Bible-focused, Bible-believing churches, and men manipulated uh, manipulated their office and became authoritarian in their rulership for all the same reasons that someone would have in a Greek Orthodox or Catholic setting in the imperial church 2,000 years ago. Yeah, and, I, you know, and what I would say also, because I taught at a Christian school for a while. Mm-hmm. I was a Bible teacher and, and counselor whatever. Right. Um, and, you know, what I would usually end up telling parents might be having problems with kids, you know, they're, you know, or problems of their own, problems in their marriage or whatever. There's a, there's kind of a three-legged stool here. And there are three authorities you do need to submit to, and they work in tandem. And if any one of them's broke, then the other's not going to work because you'd have a lot of parents come in who are having problems with their kids and, that family was not really grounded in a church anyplace, mm-hmm. not really getting bi- good Bible teaching at all, but they wanted the school to take the parent's role in correcting the child. Mm-hmm. So I'd say, you know, this isn't going to work unless you understand that there is the Spirit of God and the Word of God and the people of God, those three things. And so, yes, there's, there is the authority of a husband. 
Yes, there's authority of a father or a mother. Yes, there is the authority of a pastor. But my authority is limited by your voluntary submission. And you shouldn't submit if I am not also likewise submitted under the structure of what the Word of God mm-hmm. is saying, what the Spirit of God is doing, and what that body of believers. So I need, I need to be in fellowship. In our movement, a lot of pastors are rogues. Mm. And that's, again, that is more American than it is biblical. But a lot of our pastors are rogues because the American idea of individualism and, you know, I, I don't, you know, I don't have to be submitted to anybody in any way. And, you know, in a, in a, speci- in a specific sense, that is true. However, in a biblical sense, there's still a structure and mm-hmm. it still involves the Word of God, the Spirit of God, and the people of God. And... Um, yeah, I think while in theory you have the freedom to do anything you can get away with, um, if you're going to do anything spiritual, it ought to kind of be in line. You ought to think twice if you're going, even as a pastor, you ought mm-hmm. to think twice if you're going against what your other comrades in ministry are saying. Yeah. And, you know, we've just got to have that. So, so the, you know, there are those three things that provide kind of an overall structure. Mm-hmm. And pastoral authority, you know, I think works in tandem with that. Even even as an um, uh, an individual needs that structure in yeah. order to grow. Yeah, that's good. So you know, we've done a, a good job of maybe addressing the false church and um, the tendencies towards um, abusing their responsibility and their role. Uh, maybe you can take us into or foray into you know, the contrast to that, which would be a right. biblical responsibility. So what, when what are we I, supposed to do? Yeah, because when I look at the Bible, a- acknowledging that there's a progressive revelation that goes on, mm-hmm. really it all starts, um, you know, with God, what God's doing with his people, the Jews. Mm-hmm. And it's only, as Paul says in, in Romans, it's only because of their rejection. So we can't be heady or high-minded. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to acknowledge the mystery of what God is doing there. And, but because they did reject their Messiah, we get in on all of their New Testament blessings without having, you know, we get all the promises without having to keep all of the, um, you know, prescriptions to get into right. it. Yeah. So, uh, so what that meant was, as you look at, you know, read the book of Acts and you start going through it. You discover that okay, the the church kind of comes out of the synagogue. Mm-hmm. So every place Paul went, he went first to the Jew, and he went first to the synagogue, and he preached first to them, and then he said, "Okay, enough of that. I'm going to go to the Gentiles." Yeah, but you know, he went to the next city, and he went to the Jew first. <laughs> yeah, it's the same <laughs> now, if pattern. They rejected it. Well, then he went yeah. to the Gentiles in that city. And as you see, you know, things described there, okay, a lot of the, some of the priests and, uh, you know, some of the leaders of the synagogue, some of the elders of the synagogue would even, rulers of the synagogue would, would accept Christ. Yeah, Crispus but, and, and several others. Yeah, yeah, but then they've got to move out and establish their own spot, kind of doing the same thing. So the incipient origin story is going to be what was going on in the synagogue. So mm-hmm. the synagogue had elders, and it had a presiding elder 
who we might say would preach or exhort from the word that was read mm-hmm. in the mouth of two or three witnesses, somebody standing on the right hand and left, make sure that you know what what was read was exactly what was what was written. Mm-hmm. And um, so they had they had elders, they had a presiding elder. That's some serious accountability, by the way. That is that. Yeah, I, I'm glad I don't have that. <laughs> you know, when I stand up to preach, but. Um, um, they so they gave attendance to reading in that way. Um, they had the preaching and exhortation. They had all they had all of those things. They had so they had worship. I mean, they had praise. They had preaching, uh, reading of the word. So what had happened was when you get to the New Testament church, you know, sometimes people say, "Well, why do you even do it that way? Why can't?" Why can't you know I have my church like this, and why can't I just do that, and why can't I f- follow this model, not of ecclesia, but of oikos? Okay, so the whole house church movement. Mm-hmm. Now it is agreed that in um, countries where they kill their converts, churches probably have to meet in houses. Mm-hmm. But but that doesn't mean they're not that they that you can base the idea of church, um, like some have done in their writings on the word oikos. It's got to be a house, and not ecclesia, a gathering. Mm-hmm. And yes, some of the early churches were in houses because they were meeting at the house of a patron who had a palatial villa, and it could fit everyone. Right. Uh, but that that's not what they're taught, you know, what they would talk about with house churches. So that that confused yeah, the that house theological. The house thing church thing was, has often been um, a uh, a mask for undermining the structure of the church set right. forth in the New Testament. Yeah, it yeah. is. So it is the same thing that the communists do in countries to overthrow a government. So it's a, it's a revolutionary idea. Yeah, we'll be the revolutionaries because we'll have these cells. And these cells will all act in a similar subversive way and so forth and so on. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the church just never was like that. The church right. was always up front and the gospel was always out there. I yeah. mean, and Paul was careful. You were not out here to throw overthrow anything. Right. As a matter of fact, if you want to choose a man as a pastor, his kids cannot be involved in this insurrection against the Roman government. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, that won't look good for us. Yeah. So it's just a consideration you got to have. Yeah. So they were very clear. Uh, yeah, and I think you know, the church in Corinth is a great example of that because they were gathering in multiple houses for the sake of space. It was a practical decision, but yet they were a unified body under the authority of a pastor, and there was oversight that looks like what right. God wanted there to be. So we come out kind of looking the same, but with the, uh, the now there's a development because now once you get into how did Paul structurally and functionally Mm -hmm. set up churches in Gentile societies distinct from the synagogues that had grown up in a monolithic Jewish culture. Mm -hmm. Now we're in a now, now it's crazy because we got male, female, we got we got barbarian and and uh, Scythian and Roman, we got we got slave and free. Oh yeah. So now, how are we going to do it? Oh, here's how we'll do it. And so, when you get to the end of the Book of Acts and the end of Second Timothy, you have the complete structure mm-hmm. that you need. So what what you come up with is three things in terms of leaders, uh, you know, above the level of a saint. Mm-hmm. 
So when you get to a level of leading the saints and and uh, leading the flock, you have the episkopos. Okay, so you've got the bishop, you've got the overseer. He may be called presbyteros, so he's the elder, and he also may be called poimen, which is the pastor, the shepherd. So you've got a word to describe the office, overseer. Superintendent, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. a word to describe the person, um, elder, a a senior in, in rank, a mm-hmm. um, uh, a first, a princeps, a first citizen of the city, mm-hmm. and you've got uh, a shepherd, so the one who is in practice doing what should be done. So you've got that. You've got deacons who serve the congregation so that the pastors can do all of that. And so you've got, you know, pastors and deacons as the two officers, and then you've got the general congregation. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, Paul lays out all of that in the New Testament. We've got it all there perfect. And uh, it shouldn't be, you know, that's all we need. Why would you add to that with anything else? So you get to Philippians 1 verse 1. Paul and Timothy, the servants of Jesus Christ. Okay, they were the apostles. They're they're laying the foundation. Set those aside for a second because once they were, once they died, it was done. Mm-hmm. New Testament was given. So we don't need their gifts and and those things. But he says to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, mm-hmm. done. Yeah, and everything's covered. Yeah, and that's all you need. So you've got, you've got a, you've got a leadership core, and you know you need um, you need executives um, because if we consider the typical life cycle of any movement, including a church, uh, it kind of starts off with a man and proceeds to movement as more people get involved in the message. But then we tend to uh, overstructure life. Mm-hmm. Now, sometimes we set up structure even when there's no life yet. Yeah. But if there is life, you know, our tendency as kind of good Roman thinkers, we're going to overstructure that. So you've got a machine. Mm-hmm. And machine means, okay, uh, there's some good aspects to it. You have thought through policy so that you don't have to think through the same issue every time it comes up. So you got policy. Mm-hmm. But executives exist to make reasonable exceptions to policy. Otherwise, if you're never going to make an exception to policy, let, it's just a machine. Just let it run. Yeah. You don't need executives. You don't need pastors mm-hmm. uh, in, you know, in that way. And so, okay, so it's a machine. Then when the man passes off, it becomes a monument and that's where a lot, you know, we have move, movements which stopped moving because they became monuments after the men who founded them passed away. And, and the only way to salvage that is, you know, let God get back to calling a man mm-hmm. with a message so that the movement keeps going. And then let the leaders be those ones who maybe think through things, but also know when exceptions have to be made. Yeah. Because they can't think through everything. Right. Yeah. It's, I think that's really interesting. The point you're making is important because I think 
you know, from thinking about the listener and their framework for church, they might look at their church and they might see the structure and they say, well, there's an ex executive pastor, there's a discipleship pastor, there is an outreach pastor, there is a worship pastor, there is, a, and, and they can create a list of these responsibilities that have pastoral leadership over them. Um, and I, and I, I think it's important for us to understand why that is not right or wrong, in some cases necessary, depending on the need as you presented it. But the danger is if those things are saturated with policy and they're run on policy alone or procedure alone, a mechanism has a tendency to give way to monumentalism and things can atrophy and become hardened, especially when the first generation of leaders who ran on zeal and faith alone <laughs> begin to pass away, um, all they leave behind or they're in danger of just leaving behind some sort of structural element that does grow hardened and become a monument of the old. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, the legitimate in the sense that we have to do what Paul did, make mm -hmm. accommodations to uh, accommodations to our culture, as he did to Greek culture, because the synagogue, while they had elders and a presiding elder, well, nobody was called bishop, nobody was called deacon. That you know that was a function of what needed to happen, starting Acts chapter six, and mm -hmm. then because of that, it was carried over into the assemblies that he established, which were biblical churches. Mm -hmm. And so all of that, you know, in a, in one sense, God is accommodating Gentile culture. So taking that idea, the synagogue, uh, which means to call together, to actually become the ecclesia, which means those who are called out to a, assemble as mm -hmm. citizens mm -hmm. of the kingdom— and and so he adds the wrinkle of okay uh, you know the saints need so the saints need someone who's going to draw down the application of what is preached on Sunday that's going to be the deacons deacons are going to take what is being preached by the pastors and they're going to draw down that application in a practical way they will make practical application of those principles in the lives of people because that's what deacons do yeah they serve and they make it reality yeah and so you so you've got to have that and so so uh, you know it's a it is just the perfect kind of trinitarian model because um it is a definition of servant leadership because as pastor, I watch out for their safety. Mm -hmm. So they are sheep. I'm the shepherd. I've got to know where the green pastures are, and I kind of need to lead them there because yeah. sheep are led. Sheep are easily led. Mm -hmm. And that part of it is not so difficult. The difficult part is making sure you are leading them to the correct spot. So I've got to watch out for their safety as pastor. As elder, I've got to be their counselor. I have to know where in the Word of God to go to get the answer that they need mm -hmm. because the Bible's sufficient. There's a lot of things I don't have to know about. But I have to know where yeah. in the Bible can I give them the principle that applies to the problem they're having? Because if they, in faith, apply that pr principle in practice, it solves their problem. Mm -hmm. I mean, it just does. Yeah. Now, the, now, the caveat, of course, is that m so much mental illness today is caused by drug use. And it's like, okay, well, what do you do with that? 
So yeah, there's there's all sorts of problems that happen in our society because we will not address sin and we will not correct sin biblically. Mm-hmm. And we're simply going to re- reap those conf- consequences and there's nothing you can do about that. Yeah, that's a good point. However, if someone even who's gone down that road will submit to the structure I would give them biblically, then over time it would do the work and it would correct yeah. their psychosis. They would meet them where they're at and it exactly. would bring them so into I, a place. So I've got to be I've got to be as pastor, I gotta watch for their safety. Mm-hmm. As elder, I've got to be their counselor. As bishop, I kinda oversee the program involving everybody else. And I may have others who work with me that we also call pastors, so like you said, worship pastor, Mm -hmm. who takes that area of worship to oversee it. Because and you know, so why do we have things the way we have today? Because we have simply made the same accommodations both to history and to culture as what Paul did and Paul was doing for the early church. Mm -hmm. So we have Sunday school. I mean I we have Sunday school. Not, yeah. not every church has Sunday school. Sure. We, have, we have Sunday school. Why do we have Sunday school? Well, because we've got a completed Bible. So historically, they didn't always have that. So it, you know, church service was kind of Sunday school because it was it, and it wasn't exactly a graded approach. And uh, you know, mm-hmm. the guy got up and read for everybody, and you just as you grew, you picked it up as you went along, mm-hmm. and that's what that was. Oh, you know what? Even children can have their own Bible now. I can teach children on their own level. I can teach youth on their own level. I can, you know, take college kids on their own level. So, so we make, you know, okay, that's a reasonable, spiritually reasonable accommodation mm-hmm. um, as a way to have a pastor over this area or that as, as a congregation might grow. And people are attracted to what the Word of God's doing. Right. And no limitations are placed on what the Holy Spirit's going to do. Then we're able to do that, but uh, you know, someone has to kind of oversee um, that entire, you know, the entire thing, and and be the responsible party for whether it rises or falls. And um, you know, the, we've had Robert Robert G. Lee or others who would say everything rises or falls on leadership. Mm-hmm. And uh, as long as we don't divorce that from its New Testament biblical yeah. context, then that, that's true. And the pastor has to be leader in that sense of being bishop, which some is, have defined as benevolent dictator. <laughs> but again, I think they're, they're, you know the, the thing that brings balance is that word of God, spirit of God, people of God, triune association. Yeah. Because I, I just shouldn't do things that put me on the outs with other pastors who have a common knowledge of the Bible and biblical authority with me. Right. I, I just need to be really careful about that. We're going to pause right here for just a second so we can hear from one of our students from the Living Faith Bible Institute. My name is Dallas Lauderdale III, man. I just want to give you guys a little bit of background of my story. 2016, I graduated from Moody. And Pastor Trotter was like, hey, we're about to start another semester in, in LFBI, man. Why don't you hop on it? So. I did, man. I learned more in those three classes than I did in two years enrolled in movie. LFBI is what I was looking for back in 2014 when I enrolled in Moody. It has increased uh, my zeal for the Word of God and for the God of the Word. I really encourage anybody who is out there that is 
that is seeking God. This is the place where your excitement for the word of God and again, for the God of the word will increase. So hopefully I'll be seeing you guys soon. Take care. Visit LFBI.org to learn more about Living Faith Bible Institute. So what you're saying is really interesting because it draws to my attention this this kind of continual debate within the church about um, the role of the bishop, the function of the bishop versus the plurality of leaderships in the presbytery uh, that can often be seen. And it, again, it's uh, sometimes it's just semantics, right? That conversation is just a sem- one of semantics. Uh, sometimes it's very governmental and structured. Uh, what do you see in terms of the scriptures? Why, why would you advocate for one over the other, or maybe even just further define the two perspectives? Well, so here's here's what I would say that we see in the scripture, and you know some of the some of some of my philosophy on this probably would be colored by um, even what we're looking at right now in manuscript evidence. Mm-hmm. So Erasmus was not interested in getting to the original. Neither was Stephanus, neither was the Elzevir brothers, neither was anyone all the way up to the 1633 edition of the Greek, which finally said, you now have the text received among believers without anything altered or changed. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is what they were after. They were not after an original. Mm -hmm. They were after what had been received because that's preservation. Right. So it is only in our modern times that we even, and this I think was the Achilles heel of evangelicalism and even independent fundamental Baptist movement for some of them, is the idea that, no, I should be able to find this static representation of the original. So if people um, think that it's not reasonable to say that, that the King James is a reflection of that, then they'll go to the TR. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. okay, well, the, at least the New King James is a translation of the TR, so I'll use that. Uh, and, you know, bec- but again, that's, that philosophy is I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get to what the original said. Right. And that's a false philosophy. You've got to get to what we have received. Mm-hmm. Because the Holy Spirit was operative completely along the process. And and so now that same thing is going to be true, I think, regarding even our leadership as pastors and, and what we have and what we do and the structures that are set up and, and what we've got going on. So, so what does that mean? Well, that means that if the Bible—so so again, in our minds— and because we're great, we're the new Romans, we're great Western thinkers. Mm-hmm. We want this static representation with no tolerances. Now, if, 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 if we were forced to, we'd have to admit there's nothing you can do with no tolerance. Every space shuttle, every moonshot, everything they do, things are engineered to a specific um spot within a certain tolerance because you can't go to infinity only one who can go to infinity is God mm-hmm. so there there are tolerances here so when I look at the New Testament it, there are some things that are ambiguous I mean this whole thing about bishop pastor elder and 
to me, that best way to describe the differences is simply the different functions that those words represent. Yeah, Somebody, right. this it's the same person they're overseeing. It's the same person they're they are counseling. They are you know leading in that type of way. And it's the same person, but they're they're pastor and they're uh, you know so okay. So I've got those three areas. Now, since that is somewhat ambiguous in a technical sense, okay, that's the tolerance. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I know that I've, that I've got a church with two ordinances and likewise two officers. So I have baptism that guards the door of the church. No one gets into the church. I mean, I should have a totally regenerate church membership Yeah, because no one should be able to get in without displaying to you and me they believe the same gospel we believed when we got in. Right. Um, then I've got the Lord's Supper that guards the ongoing membership of the church because I shouldn't eat if I haven't examined. And that means I ought to be in a continuous state of revival. Mm-hmm. So I've got two. I have two ordinances. I know that. And I have two officers, deacons, and then this other level. And there are these three words. And I think there's tolerance there. In, in that sense that um, some churches m- may say, well, I've got teaching elders, because that's kind of – fits yeah, along with that's what how, That's how we is. do it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So i got pastors, and I've got elders, somewhat distinct. Okay, well, I mean, that's – sure, that's ambiguous. Certainly, uh, synagogue only had one thing to do, because either you were a Jew or you were not a Jew. So in terms of – pastoral type leadership and leading a flock well no we weren't a flock we were a tribe mm-hmm. and because we were a tribe we needed elders and those elders took the function of the priest at at our, the temple who would teach so the elders teach and teaching elders and they didn't need pastor and mm-hmm. they certainly didn't need overseer well you know how these but gentiles are a whole different the gentiles are a flock they are the sheep that is not of this fold, and they are not a tribe. I mean, they're not related like that. They are fr- they are tribes. They are all kinds. Mm-hmm. And if this thing isn't going to explode or implode, then all right, I need you know. I, I, there has to be a plurality of function, even if you don't describe it as a plurality of leaders. Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. But a plurality of the type of leadership that is needed uh, for God's church to stay together and Christ's body to to function as it should. So I know mm-hmm. there's two offices, I think, I think, but is there tolerance in how that's applied? Well, okay. I you know, I wouldn't necessarily criticize anybody that how, however that you know however they draw the distinction mm-hmm. um, I, you know there have been some Baptist churches historically long before feminist movement who had women deacons deaconesses yeah well, okay I mean I I don't have that but that's one of the lesser things I would be concerned with myself mm-hmm. uh, particularly when it's not meant as a feminist statement. Um, then okay, the, that's the way they do it. And, you know, uh, when when I went to Romania, and there was one Sunday I preached five times on a Sunday. So we preached in the big church in Boksha. Went to three outlying churches. A a rural one up in the mountains. You know, older crowd. Been mm-hmm. there forever. 
a new church just planted. Man, they were to the rafters mm. full. And uh, I don't know, someplace else, and then came back and preached at Sunday night at the main church again. With translators. With, yes, but by that time, um, man, that, he was translating while I was speaking. There was no lag. Right. And so I didn't, ha- uh, I mean, it didn't I have, have seen, to stop. I, okay, first of all, I want to pause here. I want you to get back to your idea. I've seen people translate for Alan Shelby. That is no small task. This man, there's machine, the word machine, the, the phrase machine gun Shelby did not come out of a vacuum. Your, the content when you preach, it does come, it comes fast and furious. And I've watched men translate for you <laughs> and you put them to work. So that guy was probably, by the end of the day, I imagine that guy was more tired than you were. Yeah, well, God was in it. I I'm mean, sure that's all was. I can say I'm is sure God was. was in it. I'm sure he because was. Because I think the context of Ceausescu having just fallen, <clears throat> so the church is just having that moment of openness hungry. and yes, and what we were doing. So God, God was just in it. But when we went to the rural church, mm-hmm. uh, they were having Lord's Supper at that church that Sunday. So they had Lord's Supper, and so you know I'm supposed to preside along with the Romanian pastor, and they used regular bread. Now that mm. that would have been false doctrine, you know, in the church that I would have come out of, right? You know, you can only use crackers. Yeah, I've never understood that because personally, you but... know leaven and this and that. So it can't be, and it and it can't be wine. Now they used real wine as well, as I recall. Mm. Um, now, that's probably what they had always done. Sure. Uh, although, they may not have had crackers. And, I, you know, I don't know. I, I, I would think they could have gotten grape juice, but I was probably just, what. now, so what am I going to do? Am I going to make a, an issue of that? Well, I didn't make an issue of that. I, I Okay, it's, it's their Lord's Supper. Mm-hmm. This is how they observe it. Um, I think there's that wide enough latitude, um, yeah. and I think you know. I think that's that also has to be true among churches that fellowship together, because there will be no fellowship of churches if there is no latitude. If there's zero latitude, your church will truly be the only one in the fellowship because mm-hmm. there's it, nobody's going to do it exactly right. like you. Yeah, that's a not great in point. every place, not in everything. Right. So there there has to be that tolerance of certain things in uh, with with the boundaries, with the white lines. You know, we're going to stay between the lines. So biblical authority, that's kind of the main thing. Mm-hmm. Other things are important in different levels to different people, other topics, other areas. But biblical authority kind of has to be the main thing. And then because of it, we kind of need to associate together for education and missions, I think. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, very few churches are large enough in order to get things done. I was just reading a survey on, so, okay, my, you know, the church I grew up in came out of Baptist Bible Fellowship. Mm-hmm. So the average BBF church is under 75 people. And has a budget of, you know, certainly under $100,000 and, you know, and a lot of other things. And that's the average of all of the churches. And if you have, you know, more than 100 people or if you've got a budget of a million or more, you've got, well, that, that places you in a very high percentile compared to all the rest. 
So I recognize, and I don't have a large church. I mean, I think I've got medium size. But I do recognize as a medium-sized church, I can do certain things that other smaller churches cannot, and I I should probably do some of those things for them. Mm-hmm. So I don't have my own Bible Institute, but I participate in LFBI because I do believe that people like us who have that common view of biblical authority should be able to participate and even help out all of the multitude of churches that are just not to the level that some of the other churches we have are. So we've got different flavors of between Midtown and, and um, you know, First Baptist uh, in New Philly and Wildwood. And, the, you know, there are a, a different approaches perhaps in each one, but we all got the same goal. Yeah. And, and if, if not, if there's no tolerance, well, your church will be the only one in the fellowship. Yeah, yeah. And it's really easy to segregate yourself as a Baptist. I mean, we see that and time to and, and to and and pride causes us to find reasons to do so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And that's a shame. So here's a a, a big question, and I, th- I think maybe um, a great way to a- end this um, conversation, which has been so profitable. I've I've learned so much just sitting here. Um, as we approach the coming of Christ, you know, tomorrow or whatever tonight, whenever that that's coming, pastors don't have the privilege of only thinking about their church in the next 24 hours, right? They are obligated uh, by the call on their life as shepherds to anticipate the next five, 10 years, 100 years of their church. They have to see all that. It has to be in vision. It has to be in sight. And I think that um, understanding at some level the age in which we live and anticipation of the Lord's coming and calling the flock to live in light, to live in the zeal of expecting the King's return, there are there are yet still adaptations that we need to take within the biblical framework and within that space of tolerance, right? With uh, What do you anticipate? What do you see right now as, you, as a pastor, as a pastor not over, only over your church, but you are you know, the president of the fellowship, dean at LFBI, you look across the horizon and you have a responsibility to lead the flock of God. What ways do you see yourself or even now and moving forward expecting some adaptation in order to achieve the objectives that Christ has set before us? So this is where the rubber meets the road because this is where leadership is shown. I'm not speaking of myself. I'm speaking of the concept. Mm-hmm. This is where biblical leadership is shown. Pastoral leadership is shown, and this is exactly the spot. And if you, you know, go to a church and they do a leadership, you know, they have a leadership conference, and you're there over a weekend or someplace else for two or three days, I guarantee you, none of those leadership conferences ever deal with this crux issue. Mm-hmm. What they are concerned about is only the leadership principles that are going to benefit you personally. And how can I get you as an individual to develop personally your leadership skills so that you can lead your church typically to be bigger, be better, yeah. What they're kind of saying is, be like us. Or you meet, know, meet, I've got meet felt needs or whatever yes, it is. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And that, boy, that 
We've so missed it because that's not where leadership is seen. Mm. Where leadership will be seen will be on that, that one idea. How do I lead my church for the next toward and for and into the next five years, 10 years, 15 years, 25 years, and do it in the next day? Mm-hmm. How, how do I lead? That's leadership there. How am I going to lead my church to do what it should be doing 10 years from now in such a way that I'm cognizant of the fact that the rapture could take place this year? Mm-hmm. How do I do that? Now, that it, that is where leadership is called for. Mm-hmm. And I think everything that leadership is has to be involved in, in that very thing. Because if you have that now and not yet approach, that will, that will give you the tolerances and that will lead you to sort out the important essentials from the things that your pride just wants you to stand up for. Mm. Because after all, Jesus could come this year. If Jesus comes this year, is that item, that particular thing, is it that big a deal to me? Well, maybe it shouldn't be. Right. At the same time, I've got to lead my church to be a strong church, given uh, in our society today, it may never be a large church. You know, am I ever going to pastor a mega church? No, I don't think so. You know, for one thing, I'm too old. None of the mega churches is going to call me as pastor. And if what I'm what I'm aiming for and what I'm going for in the strength of a body being built together does not result in mega results in our society. Because most megachurches, I think, are like the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man. <laughs> I think so. I don't think they're Iron Man. I want Iron Man. Right. And they are the Stay Puff Marshmallow <laughs> Man. And that's not what I'm aiming for. So, right. I mean, good for them. They can, they can go for that. But I've got to have a superhero church that's good for the long term, but can handle up on the business that needs to be done to rescue people in the, in the, in the immediate moment of crisis. Right. And then that helps sort everything else out for me. Alan, so there's a, the beautiful thing about being the host of this show is that I get to have conversations that I want to have, right? That's, and everybody else has to listen. I mean, or they don't have to, they can turn it off. But this is a topic that was just on my mind based on other conversations we've had in the past. I'm so thankful that we sat down and did this. This was just enjoyable and insightful. And I want to say thank you. Oh, well, praise the Lord. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Any, of course, anytime, Alan Shelby. But we want to thank you to uh, the listener for joining us for another episode. And uh, I know that, that you join us week after week. And man, the contrast too between you know, last week's episode and this one, it might be a jump. It might require different ears or you have to tune the frequency a little bit. But these conversations are all intended to paint a picture 
um, of a, a biblical perspective, a biblical philosophy of ministry, of leadership, approaching God's word, living out our faith. And, and so hopefully you had ears to hear just how important this role uh, of leader, um, of pastorate is for your church, but also the function of the church. And, and all of us have a part in that. Um, saints, deacons, and and pastors is what we have a part in getting the mission done. And, and the question for us, I think, is are you holding on to things in your heart, in your mind, in your traditions that could get in the way of you adapting in order to reach this world? And and what has God really called you to, you know, really? And so uh, we're thankful that you jumped in with us today and, and had an opportunity to hear from Alan. Uh, but we also want to invite you, if you feel a call in your life, to be a leader in God's church at whatever level, whether saint or deacon or pastor or uh, that other weird thing, the missionary that goes out to make sure that that gets replicated throughout all of the world, um, whatever it is that God's calling you to do, we want to ask you to join us at LFBI so that you can get the biblical education you need and you can get the philosophy necessary to be exactly who God called you to be. We are so thankful that you joined us today. We love you. We can't wait uh, to have you with us again next week. God bless. Thanks for listening to The Postscript. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a rating and review in order to help other people find our podcast. If you value this show, please help us continue creating content by supporting Living Faith Bible Institute at lfbi.org support.